Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of The Simon Law Firm, Tim Cronin, personal injury trial attorney at The Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith. We're back with another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith. I'm Tim Cronin. I'm John Simon. Today's topic is pretrial motions. There's a lot to talk about here, and we're going to just jump right into it. First, we should talk about the importance of pretrial motions. All of us who've been practicing for years know it's kind of a bread and butter issue. We do it all the time, and this gave us an opportunity to stop and think about what we do and why we're doing it. So let's start with the importance of the pretrial motion. You know, you worked very hard in discovery to get certain admissions, pieces of evidence, documents, and you really need to work hard to make sure you get to use them at trial. I'm thinking about the feeling of walking back from court after a pretrial, and there are times when you feel very good because you won most of the motions, you got most of the evidence coming in, but there's also times where you're walking back and you're thinking, wow, what happened to my case? And, you know, from each side's perspective, the things that you really need to focus on that you need to keep out because it can distract the jury from everything else you want them to be focusing on. So I think a lot of thought needs to go into pretrial motions. And there's so many times based on people not knowing what's coming in, what's not coming in, you don't even have realistic settlement discussions until everybody figures that stuff out. So you better do the best job that you can during the pretrial and on those motions to put yourself in the best position. Yeah, you really don't know what your case looks like until after the motions are ruled on. There might be an issue or two or a motion or two that's dispositive of the case. And that's really where you need to be concerned. Maybe it's your only expert on a particular issue in a product case or a med mal case. And, you know, they phrased causation. You're going to use their depot and the way they answered the causation question is being challenged or something like that. Obviously, those need to be at the top of the list. Anything dispositive of your case. But most of our motions are really directed to keeping the stuff out that just we don't think has any place in the case. Yeah. And, you know, pretrial motions can mean things that happen much before trial. I was kind of thinking in terms of the pretrial where you're dealing with motions in limine and stuff. But either way, for motions in limine, I think waiting to think about them until two days before they are due to be filed is a mistake. You figure out early on the stuff the other side is saying that might be problematic for you or the defenses that are being put forth or claims that are being put forth that you might need to try to get rid of. And you really need to have, I think, in your mind what's going to happen at that pretrial so I can put myself in the best position. And you need to be thinking about that during every depot, during discovery, setting up motions, using depots and testimony, and thinking about what you think the most important motions are going to be from the beginning of the case. Yeah, I can give you a couple of good examples. In a product liability case, for instance, where the defense expert might say, my opinion is that this product is not defective and describe why. In the alternative, the expert might say, this is a perfectly safe product. It's got a great safety record or corporate rep may say that. And what that does is it opens the door for all kinds of stuff to come in that might not otherwise come in. Right. And so going into depots, and again, just like was said earlier, this is something you need to be thinking about 18 months before trial, 12 months when you take in the corporate rep dep or the experts. That's what they want to say. And having them take real extreme positions on how safe a product is, or for instance, a physician talking about procedure, they've done it so many times and not had any major problems. Does that open the door up to other problems they've had that might be significant or not? In any event, the time to think about the evidence, getting it in or keeping evidence out 
is when you can build a record, when you're still questioning witnesses and you right. can, you know, for instance, another great example, I think, is the other side's expert opinion. We were just talking about it. A lot of times they'll base it on things that are sort of flimsy or they really don't have all the information or the evidence or they're using methodology that isn't accepted. But if they can get the opinion in, it opens up a swath of other like prejudicial evidence about your client that they can get in. And so, yeah, you need to be thinking about eliminating claims or defenses with the testimony of experts and Daubert motions. You might think it's a silly defense that the jury isn't going to believe, but by being able to get it in, they're able to get in a swath of evidence give me, give that's us an example, prejudicial what, for your client. What are you thinking so about? So, for example, I had a case I was working on with Mary a few years ago, and it was not giving a Rogam shot. It's a shot that women can get during pregnancy because the baby might have positive blood as opposed to negative blood. And if they don't give this shot, then the mother can develop as part of their immune system if they get pregnant again, things that attack the next baby if it also has the opposite blood type. And we thought we had a great case. You worked on that case a little bit. Right, right. And the thing that we definitely didn't want to allow in was the mom smoked during pregnancy. It had nothing to do with anything, but it's a can't get over it fact for a jury, you know, because I understand why it's a can't get over a fact for a jury. And so they had an expert that they were going to get that in with some kind of causation defense that was just very flimsy. And I just spent the entire depot with that expert. It was trying to combine it with other things. Like it could have been this and this and this, but also smoking's part of it. And I spent the whole depot with that expert eventually getting him to, you cannot say more likely than not within a reasonable degree of medical certainty that smoking contributed to cause the condition of this baby. And eventually got there. And with that, at the pretrial, our motion in limine number one, was to eliminate smoking because the expert can't say this, so they can't get it in. Right, but and we won that motion, and the case settled two hours after that pretrial. So you got a bad it. fact. It shouldn't come in, and they're trying to bootstrap it, get it in by yeah. tying it to an expert's opinion that doesn't have adequate basis. Right. But that's something you needed to address when you're questioning the expert. Correct, and to prep our expert about it earlier to make sure our expert didn't slip up and give some, well, it could have contributed to cause because then I think they get to cross our expert on it. So we had to be thinking about it from the beginning of the case. It might be worth mentioning that the opposite of what you did, Tim, is to have no foundation at all. And then you're left with what often happens. We've all seen it. Yeah. Sometimes we've done it, hand-waving. Attorneys just standing there going, judge, there's no evidence of this being related to that. And you're just trying to persuade the judge that it's just a good idea. Right. As opposed to, <laughs> no, we, we have real positive <laughs> yeah, evidence. Let's talk saying, about it. <laughs> right. Exactly. And, you know, some of the things that we're talking about, we're focusing a lot on the pretrial, the motions immediately before trial. But all of these tips and things that we're suggesting apply equally to any pretrial motion. Yeah. yeah. I mean, motions to compel you build a record to be able to say, here's exactly why I can show you why I need to get this evidence. Yeah, there you go. Classic being burdensome and harassing. You know, okay, tell us how it's burdensome. It's a rare thing in my experience that an attorney will show up with a factual basis for making that argument. It's usually just, it's going to be a lot of work, judge. Letting the judge just speculate as to whether, you know, how burdensome it would be. I had one case where I called in the president of the company and explained to the judge as part of testimony during the motion, this is all the steps they have to go through to produce that information. 
I won a motion and it was a key part of it. So I guess it's important to think of every possible motion you can possibly think of. And the more you have, the better. Right, guys? <laughs> if you only have 40 or 50 and you can think of 10 more, throw them in there, right? Because who knows what could happen? Yeah. Is that the way to go? No, I tend to think you need to focus on what's necessary, especially if we're limiting it to the pretrial. I mean, motions to compel... I guess the same is true. If you're asking for 60 things, the court can get frustrated because it's overwhelming. You really need to focus on what you need, both in discovery. The, the court will get aggravated. Yeah, it will get aggravated. And same thing if we're talking about pretrial motions and limine, you really need to focus on the stuff that's most important. Otherwise, those things get lost in the mix. And increasingly, I am seeing opposing parties file 60, 70, 80 motions in limine, and it's just a head scratcher because how do you think the court cannot be expected to go through it and they're looking comparatively at like tim filed five and they are about very particular evidence and he can cite to it and now you guys have 75 that are all like ethereal questions about following the rules without like pointing to specific you need to focus on what's important you got to be able to get the judge's attention yeah, so that you, they can you should focus. win all of them you shouldn't be filing motions that aren't well taken so eric let me ask you this is it important which one, which motion that you argue first or the order of the motions? My gut is to go with the primacy effect. You know, start with your best. Get your credibility established first. Because if you start with a weak one, the judge is going to go, oh, I got a bunch of these. Start with your best, get your momentum, and get your credibility. You know, we'll talk probably more about credibility too. But when you bring motions that you win and your opponent is actually fighting you on it, that's a good thing. That's a great, great beginning. Yeah. George has been on our podcast, George Fitzsimmons, who I let everybody know, he's been my mentor for 30 years. I worked with him closely for 10 years. And I remember the first month or so that I was there, there was a pretrial we had to do in federal court, didn't know anything about the case. George assigned me the job of preparing our motions and responding to the other side's motions. And I read the file, read the deposition, spent a ton of time on it and came up with, I think it was 20 15 or 20 motions and responded to the other sides. I put this all together, showed it to George. He signed it and we filed it. We showed up at the pretrial. Again, this was in federal court. The judge asked us, you know, did the plaintiff have any motions? And George said, none, Your Honor. <laughs> <And> we, had <laughs> filed, we had filed 15 or 20. And I thought, what in the hell's going on here? And then the defense started arguing their motions. And George kept saying, we don't have a problem with that one, Judge. We don't have a problem with that one. And then when they got to number 16 or whatever it was, it George really said, mattered. yeah, the only one that really mattered and was dispositive, George said, well, Your Honor, we have a big problem with that one. None of the motions that I put together, they were things that we could have handled during the course of the trial, and none of them were case dispositive. He did the right thing by not bringing them up. So when it gets time to actually writing your motion, Eric, what kind of advice do you have? I find that the written motion keeps on working for you in case the judge takes the case under advisement. Mm -hmm. If you don't have a good written motion that punches, like everything you say in that motion is a line drive, you're going to feel really uneasy when the judge goes, I'll think under about advisement. that. Under Yeah, I'll, I'll get yeah. back to you. And you're thinking, this is a bad situation. And if you got a good motion, you're feeling great because they'll go back there and they're going to get a good dose of what you just tried to say orally. Yeah. That takes time. I think of the writing process as being putty. You know, you get the first draft down, it's just the beginning. And then you get those titles right and you get the first sentence right. And then you make sure the first sentence leads into the second sentence and so on and so forth and get to it in the sense that everything that doesn't move you forward is actually moving you backwards. The way I see it, there's no neutral sentences in your brief. Either they're moving you forward or they're hurting you. 
So that takes time and a lot of people don't have time and it's a big problem for a lot of folks trying to get things done during the day that they want to get the motion out and they don't have the time to hone it and get it really shining. Yeah. But yeah, get rid of everything that doesn't help you. And give the court every single thing it needs so it knows every single thing you are saying is supportable by the case law, by statutes, by depot testimony. I see so often on important motions, especially motions in limited, because people are rushing when we're getting ready for trial. We have a million things we're dealing with where there'll be two paragraphs about what the facts and evidence are without a citation. And you're going, you better bring that to the pretrial when you're arguing it. The judge goes, can you show me that this is true? So you should probably attach it, everything the court might need to know what you're saying is accurate and to decide that motion in your favor. Attach it and bring it with you to the argument so that if the judge goes, prove to me what you just said is true, you want to be able to immediately go, here it is, highlight, tab, boom. And it's hard to do for some of us some of the time because we know the case really well. And for a judge on a complicated motion, they may be drinking out of a fire hydrant where it's their eyes glaze over if you're not helping them. And you want to just feed them one thing necessary at a time and make sure it's all available. It's like, you know, if you're sending astronauts to the moon, you got to make sure everything's in that spacecraft. And I think that's the same thing when you give the judge that motion and you're saying in this deposition, one of the witnesses said X, Y, Z attach that or quote it with a citation. And I don't attach entire depositions typically. I attach the cover page and the specific pages that I referenced so the court can immediately go and look at it. When I'm filing a motion, I know what the other side's argument is going to be. I make it a point to get to it fairly quickly that I am acknowledging. I mean, obviously, I want to make my main points first, but How much time do you spend or do you wait for a reply brief when you know what the other side's going to be saying and you think you can already deal with it and eliminate it before the court reads the other side's response? All the time. It's often the first thing I do. Let's talk about the, you know, my opponent is going to say these three things. And this is I anticipate they will argue X. And here is why that is not a valid argument. And this is a chance for you to, you know, get even more credibility. We keep talking about credibility as we should all through these podcasts. And this is a chance for you to say, I expect my opponent to argue these three points. And then don't just say them, say them really well. Say them better than they can. There's a term, you ever heard the term, it's called steel man. It's the opposite of straw man. You know, a straw man attack is where you make it a weak version of your opponent's argument. And then you knock it down because you misstated it so badly. Yeah. Or you made it a weak version. There's an opposite term that I've learned in recent years called steel man. You know, make sure you say it really well. And then you say, here's why I win, despite the fact that they made these arguments. And if you can't do that, maybe you shouldn't be arguing that motion. Right. Right. (laughs) Right. I agree with you. Eric, you talked about drinking out of a fire hydrant. You got to remember, you're in front of the judge and she's got 20 other cases going and maybe had a docket with other things on it that day. You know your case way better than most judges will because you've researched the heck out of every issue. You've lived with those issues. You know the facts better, even know the law better in a lot of instances because you've drafted a brief on it. So what I do is, first of all, at the hearing, I'll ask the judge's permission to give a very brief, maybe minute or two summary of the case so that the motions can be taken in context a little bit. You know, the evidentiary issues, nothing where you want to go overboard. You don't want to be an advocate at that point, but just lay out what the case is about, what your position is, what the other side's position is. The other Generally, thing I, I mean, you're yeah. framing the case for the court so that they can consider arguments in context. Absolutely. Right? And I also, you know, talk about helping the court. Every time I will have a binder with the motions in them, tab, I'll have any cases that are relevant, attached, highlighted versions of the cases. 
but all of that stuff, you know, typically when we go to a pretrial, we have the instructions, even things the judge didn't ask for. I'll say, Your Honor, here we have for you an exhibit list. Here's a set of our draft instructions so that the court has the information that they need, but it also tells the court you're the one that's prepared, you know what you're talking about. I teach uh, pretrial advocacy, and I know, John, you teach uh, trial advocacy, but it's fun to watch the students when you have simulated motions, and I'm the judge, and I say, okay, I'm going to call the case, Smith versus Jones, and they look at each other. They don't know who's supposed to say the next thing, and what I'll tell them is, feel free to jump in. You know, this is your chance. I would prefer, you know, and they're going to then have a jousting match. You asked to be here. Please tell me why. (laughs) So then the question is, you know, just like John said, give the court a nice summary of, and this is interesting, I see parallels between this and the statement of facts in an appellate brief. You wanna give it so when you're done, your opponent will look at the judge and say, that's right, that's accurate. That's accurate, that's what the case is about. But saying that, there is perhaps plausible deniability here. You wanna make sure you're framing the facts. Of course, that would help you, but not over the line where the judge says, oh, you're already arguing, you're acting like you're giving a neutral. I do it and then I go, now they dispute that. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So there's an art to this. Um, and another point that I think is a corollary to that, we all have judges that we've practiced in front of quite a bit. And then judges that, you know, even now you guys have been practicing longer than I have, judges that you'll appear in front of that you've never been in front of before. And I think for those you aren't already familiar with, you need to undertake to try to do know, your research. know your judge. Right. Know your judge. Call, call, other, call lawyers. other lawyers. Absolutely. If you have major issues that are coming up in front of this judge and you're not familiar with them, See if you can find past orders from the same judge on that. It may convince you not to file the motion. If you know you're going to lose it anyway and you lose credibility, try to find past orders from the same judge or judges in the same circuit. But you really need to try to get a sense of who you're in front of before you show up. Years ago, one of the attorneys I was practicing with had a case set for trial and I went to watch. I watched part of the pretrial and then watched part of the opening. Just you know, I didn't participate in any of it. I just watched. Watching the judge and how the judge ruled on things, it was almost like if it was your motion, you lost it. I mean, if you were asking for something, you didn't get it. He didn't deny it completely, but he's like, well, you can take that with the case. Why are you bringing that up? And really gave the attorney a hard time for, number one, filing motions that didn't need to be filed, but mostly just filing motions. You know, and it just seemed like your better response would be to... uh, We'll just try the case. We'll just try the the case. I'm ready. But it was really to the point where it was almost whoever's motion it was, he was denying it. And so I happened to have a case about five or six months later, a trial in front of that very judge. And of course, I had motions in limine. I was prepared to argue them. But, you know, based on what I had seen, I decided none of them were earth shattering, case dispositive, and they could all be brought up during the case. So we get to the pretrial in the other side, big firm here in St. Louis. And again, they had 30, 40 motions. I had none. I mean, I had no motions. And the first thing the judge said is, well, what do we have you know, for the plaintiff? I said, we don't have any motions, Your Honor. We're here for trial. And then the other side, of course, went painstakingly through all of these motions, continuing to lose one after another, after another, after another, to the point where you know, we took a break and the attorney on the other side, who I knew very well, was like, did I do something wrong or whatever? And I just scratched my head and said, I have no idea. I don't, <laughs> yeah. I don't know what's going on. But we ended up settling the case. But the whole point is, know your audience. I think the best thing to do, if you've got a trial or a pretrial coming up in front of a judge, go sit in the courtroom and watch. See how that judge handles issues. See what their temperament is, what they're asking for. They may say, we need copies of this or that. 
Some judges might be very hyper-organized and particular about wanting certain things, but it will never hurt you. It'll always help you because you'll gain something, some insight. Plus, you get to meet the court clerk, the bailiff, the court personnel, introduce yourself. That's a big plus. You should be doing that all the time. You know, judges have different styles, and uh, I won't name names of one judge in particular, but he would just lean back and almost look like he was asleep while people talk for 30 minutes. People would stop talking because they wore themselves out after, you know, 18 exchanges. And the judge would go, okay, I'll deny that. That was kind of it. And uh, <laughs> on the other extreme, we have uh, a judge here, Judge Durker, who had a docket where people would go in unsuspecting sometimes, I think, and they would start arguing their motion. And he would hit them with a laser beam question about, tell me how this case, the Smith yeah. versus Jones case, He would case, have read everything here. and every case cited he, and found he, cases you didn't cite. That's right. And, He's and very like prepared. 40 seconds into the motion, it's over because they didn't know their case. I mean, and some people just go up and they wing it. And it's not the way to practice law. You got to be prepared. And But what was interesting is that the worst attack came from the judge, not your opponent. In fact, like you said, Tim, he would mention cases that neither attorneys would have. And that's good to know before you go in. I had a case down in a rural county 20 years ago. It was a products case involving a hay baler, and it was a gruesome injury. And so for my summary, John, like you're saying, summarize, you know, what the case is about. I started describing what a hay baler is. And about two sentences in, the judge looked at me and she said, Mr. Veith, I know what a hay baler is. You may continue. So then, like 15 years ago, my opponent on the case, I, I ran into him again. He goes, yeah, I still remember you. You're the guy that's explaining to the judge and the farm community what a hay baler is. I didn't think of it as a, a great cause of embarrassment, but you know, now I do. Here's something I notice you do a lot, John, and so I've started doing it a lot. Pick up on the language the court is using if they're the type of judge that you know gets engaged with the argument and tries to ask meaningful questions. If they're asking questions of your opponent and using particular language, I'll try to start using that exact same language with the court. Say, judge, that's exactly right. And that's why you should grant or deny this motion because and use the same language. But also remember it for later in the case and just keep using it at later motions. Use it throughout the trial when you know you're going to have the same evidentiary. D- direct the verdict. Again. Right. All of it. Over yeah. and over again. Just copy the exact language that the judge used. Yeah. And you know what? As everybody knows, these aren't final rules. These are preliminary rulings. You still need to object during the course of the trial. And, you know, if the judge has argued your point for you, make sure you make the judge's argument right back to her. Yeah. I have increasingly noticed what I find frustrating, but I think courts are finding frustrating. If we're talking about pretrial motions, motions in limine, motions in limine are supposed to be about evidence, not like vague concepts. And increasingly, I'm starting to see sometimes 30, sometimes 40, sometimes 75 motions in limine filed against me by a single party. And they're generic, like exclude hearsay without referencing, okay, is there a particular hearsay statement that is in the evidence that you think should be excluded? Because I may have a different purpose. So it's not hearsay. It may be an exception to hearsay or like essentially follow the rules of procedure. And I just think that's not a very good idea for people to do. The court already knows it's going to follow the rules and you're just, you're overwhelming the court with things that aren't time to go through and are not meaningful things. I think you need to focus on evidence you want to exclude, things the court can actually make a meaningful ruling about. Right. There's no context. Correct. And you really can't make a ruling on many of these motions when they're not in context. 
So that concludes today's episode about pretrial motions. We'll be back with more part two of pretrial motions on a future episode. This is Eric Beeth. I'm Tim Cronin. I'm John Simon. We'll see you next time. The Jury is Out is brought to you by the Simon Law Firm. Share your thoughts with John, Tim, and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law. Subscribe today because the best lawyers never stop learning.